2: Hi,
3: welcome to The Rookie Podcast. I'm Tavi Gavinson, and this week we have Roxane Gay, author of the new memoir, Hunger, in conversation with rookie contributor Jenny Zhang.
0: I survived because of books, yeah. which doesn't work for everyone, but you have to have something. Yeah. You have to have something you care about that's external to you and that's not dependent on other people.
3: And the author, Michelle T., has a new book called Modern Tarot. I'm really into tarot, but I'm also kind of a novice. So when I was in Los Angeles recently, I had Michelle read my cards and learned a lot about myself. And maybe you'll learn something,
4: too. It's what you put into them. I, I always say, like, you're the magic. Like, you're the cards aren't magic. But you're the magic that's animating the cards.
3: And later in the show, illustrator and comic artist Jillian Tamaki, she also has a new book called Boundless, answers a question from a listener for our segment Ask a Grown, where we ask real grown-ups for life advice.
1: I think you should absolutely go to the party, and if you hate it, and then you for sure know that that's not for you, and then you can know that for yourself.
3: But before we get to all of that, I wanted to share an email we received from a rookie listener. To celebrate Pride Month, we wanted to know how rookie listeners came out to loved ones and how they reacted. This is from Renee, who's 18, from Illinois. She says, My process of coming out to my family was not planned. It happened naturally and gradually. I personally view my sexuality as a regular part of my life that I shouldn't need to announce even if it differs from heterosexuality. I thought I'd just one day bring home a girlfriend and it would be established that I like girls and it wouldn't be something that we needed to talk about. I didn't want to make coming out an announcement because I wanted to normalize my sexuality and not make it sound like a big deal because it isn't a big deal. It's just another part of who I am, like my hair color or my height. Renee also says, disclaimer, power to those who choose to make it an announcement. Be proud. I just feel this was about my experience. And she goes on. Since I never officially came out, I guess little clues were revealed for a while, because I wasn't hiding anything. I'm pansexual, and I've had a couple boyfriends, but didn't have ongoing relationships yet with any girls or non-binary people beyond hookups or short flings. By senior year, I became president of my school's Gay-Straight Alliance. I love planning and organizing, and my time as presidents of clubs was so much fun, definitely something I'm made for. More and more clues were dropped through Amazon.com as I ordered rainbow bracelets for my club to sell at school and ordered rainbow ribbon to craft rainbow awareness ribbons. I also made my dad take me to Walmart to pick up tie-dye paints for a rainbow tie-dye party for our club shirts. When I graduated this May, I was the first Gay-Straight Alliance president in our school's history to pester the school board enough to provide our club's graduating future presidents with a rainbow cord to wear over our gowns. I proudly wore my rainbow cord when I got my diploma. This year, I did my best to make it part of my regular life. And so far, my parents have been treating it like so. Love, Renee, 18, from Illinois. Thank you so much to Renee for sharing her story. And thank you to all of the Rookie listeners who called or emailed. We love hearing from you. I am so thankful Roxane Gay exists. You might know her as the author of the crucial essay collection, Bad Feminist, or her collection of short stories, Difficult Women. She also has a novel called An Untamed State. She wrote a graphic novel for Marvel called Black Panther, World of Wakanda. And she also regularly writes pieces for publications like the New York Times, The Nation, and The Guardian. She's even published a short story in Rookie called The Year I Learned Everything, and it's so good. I revisit it all the time. Roxanne's newest book is a memoir called Hunger. In it, she says, every body has a story and a history. In Hunger, she shares the story of her own body and tackles issues like trauma, sexual assault, and race. She sat down with rookie contributor Jenny Zhang for a conversation about the book. Jenny, you may know from her countless rookie articles, like some of the most important things we've ever published, in my opinion. And she has a book of short stories coming out called Sour Heart. I was really excited to hear these two in conversation. So without further ado, here's Jenny and Roxanne.
2: Hi, Roxanne. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, Jenny. Thank you for having me. Can you just tell um, rookie readers what Hunger is about?
0: Yeah. Uh, Hunger is my first memoir, and it is a memoir of my body. Uh, It's a book I wrote because uh, when I was 12 years old, I was sexually assaulted. And in the aftermath, I started to overeat and gain a lot of weight. And For uh, Not 40. 30 years later, I'm still dealing with that and the sort of repercussions of overeating for a a great many years as this sort of method of self-protection. And so I kind of look at the history of my body
2: Mm -hmm.
0: from then to now.
2: Was this a difficult book to write?
0: It was a very difficult book to write, absolutely. You know, when I was thinking about what I wanted my next nonfiction project to be after I wrote Bad Feminist, uh, I thought, I would love to read something interesting about fatness. Yeah. And then I thought, the book I want to write least is a book about (laughs) fatness. Yeah. And so I knew that was the book I had to write the most. Yeah. And I definitely dragged my heels quite a lot. But in the end, I know that I wrote a book that I needed to write.
2: There's like a part in your book where you talk about how – You don't want to be remembered or defined as the worst thing that's ever happened to you. But Mm -hmm. that's kind of how we, I guess, as a society, identify women a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. And we want them to, you know, like constantly regurgitate their pain and re-traumatize themselves. How do you write about something that is both so difficult and harrowing, but also kind of like honor the part of you that's funny and weird and, and not just, you know, your pain. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, very carefully, I tried to have very strict boundaries about what I will and won't write about and how I will and won't write about myself. Mm-hmm. And that helps. Um, you know, when you f- stick to your boundaries, you never betray yourself. Yeah. And that was really important to me throughout writing the book. And, you know, the reality is that this terrible thing did happen, but it's also, it has been a long time. And I'm as over it as I'm ever going to (laughs) be. And so now I'm in a place where I can more comfortably talk about it and where I know that this is a thing that happened to me, but it is by no means the whole of my life or who I am. And that made it a lot easier to not feel like I would be defined only by this one thing. And anyone who would choose to define me that way is someone who just doesn't get what I'm trying to do.
2: Do you – I saw that you had tweeted about – there's like an article about you in the Washington Post Mm, Um, (laughs) and about hunger. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think – let me see. You tweeted – I guess this is like a message, an email from some random person that Mm -hmm. says like, Hi, Roxanne. Your name misspelled, of course. (laughs) I saw the article about you in the post. You know exercise is essential to control weight, question mark. And you just wrote like, gosh, I had no fucking clue. Um, (laughs) I'm sure you get so much unsolicited advice, opinions, comments that range from laughably cruel to awfully cruel or whatever. How do you separate yourself from the person who gets those comments and has people who feel entitled to talk to you that way?
0: I don't separate myself because that's me. Mm. Like, I can't can't outsource that, sadly. But I I just try and keep, you know, I try to take it all in stride. Mm. I try to delete as quickly as I can. (laughs) At some point, I'm going to actually have to stop. Controlling, I'm going to have to give over my Twitter account because it's yeah. just too much. And yeah. that's a shame because I love Twitter, but I am <laughs> fast approaching a time when it's not worth it. Yeah. And so we'll see. But um, I just try to screen as well as I can and recognize that these people offering me advice, it's about them and yeah. their own fears of fatness. Right. And um, I think that people are afraid of fat because they know how they treat fat people, yeah, and they see how fat people are treated, and they don't want that for themselves, yeah. Uh, and so, it is what it is. But yeah, I get unsolicited advice advice every single day, <laughs> every day, yeah. As if you know, and quite frankly, I fat people know about dieting and nutrition and so on. At least most of us far better than most people. Mm-hmm. Like I can tell you how to. Lose weight. I can give you mathematical equations <laughs> about calorie burning and yeah. kcals. And it's, I know it. I mean, it's not a question of ignorance or stupidity ever. Right.
2: Um, when I was reading your book, it made me think I, I obviously don't, I, I can relate to some of the things you're writing about in your book as. An Asian woman with mm-hmm. like a small body in the world, where I think sometimes I I walk through the world and I, I look super available to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I look like I wouldn't fight back. I look like I I look like I'm not much, mm-hmm. and and I, I feel that a lot of the times. And sometimes I don't know it's is that who I really am, or mm-hmm. or is that because that's how people constantly treat me? They feel entitled to put their hands on me. They feel entitled to tell me what they think I am. Mm -hmm. How do I—you know, I'm I'm constantly like, did I become this person because of other people, or was I always this person? And there's this really, um, I don't know, poignant part in your book where you talk about how, you know, the person you were before you were raped and the person you were after, Mm -hmm. the person you were before um, you became fat and the person you were after. And you also talk about, like, the person you could have been or should have been or would have been. Mm-hmm. And I always think that, like, who would I have been without white supremacy? Who would I have <laughs> been without, you know, patriarchy? But then it's like, what am I talking about? Like, what world What am I referring to where there isn't that, where people aren't horrible about fatness and people where rape culture is dead? Like... Is it just magical thinking to wonder that? It is,
0: of course. Um, <laughs> nothing good comes of magical thinking. But I think it's inevitable when you look at yourself and you consider the ways in which your life has been shaped by external forces and by white supremacy and misogyny. Mm. Uh, you have to wonder, who would I be if I had grown up in a bubble? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, who would I be if I were untainted by life? Yeah. And that's a really seductive idea. Yeah. Um, Like, this idea of a pristine me, unharmed, unbowed. Uh, But I also tend to think that I don't know if I would have been as interesting. Yeah. My best friend tells me that all the time. (laughs) Um, We talk about, you know, like, because I definitely, when I'm talking to her, I do wonder, you know, who would I have been? But, you know, she thinks that I would not have been the me that I am. And so, not that it was worth it, but something decent did come out of something terrible. And that I generally like my personality very much. (laughs) I think I'm hilarious. And so, um, yeah, I definitely engage in magical thinking on my bad days. And I just wonder, you know, who would I have been if these boys hadn't gotten a hold of me? Um, But... I also know who I am because they did. Yeah. And uh, I would not at this point in my life at forty two years old, I would not change who I am.
2: I think that's also something that certainly with age and time mm-hmm. it's and a lot of work which Yes. <laughs> a lot of work. I've you been in clear therapy about. off and
0: on since I was fourteen. <laughs> yes. So um, Mind built by therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I think if you go to enough therapy, you start to drink the Kool-Aid eventually. Yeah. Um, And I don't mean that in a bad way.
2: No, totally. Um,
0: There are things I find infuriating about therapy, but for the most part, I think it's a blessing to just have someone with whom you can talk about your insecurities and your fears Mm -hmm. and the issues that you just can't work through on your own, Yeah, I think all too often, especially people of color, are told that we're supposed to be stoic and that yeah. uh, mental health issues are for white people. Yeah. And that is not the case. Uh, living in this world is difficult, no matter who you are.
2: Yeah.
0: And sometimes you need some help. And so I definitely have put in the work, uh, and it was worth it.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. and. I mean, I'm very new to therapy, but one of the most, I guess the biggest things I'm learning about it is instead of being like, how do I hide from this pain? How do I forever Mm -hmm. keep it in this like little box that I never have to open? Instead, it's about just accepting that's part of you. Yes. Um, And acceptance is really difficult. It is very difficult.
0: You know, one of the things I'm still learning is, How to not hide from the pain, like just face it, and how to not hide from fear. Yeah. uh, Because I'm very good at hiding from fear. Like, oh, I don't wanna feel that. So I'm gonna box myself off. I'm gonna, in this body. Yeah. And as I try to, I don't wanna say lose weight, but just change my body, for me, um, a lot of the work I'm doing. Uh, With my favorite professionals, (laughs) it is really about undoing old habits and allowing myself to feel that sort of insecurity and safety of being like the what I feel is danger of being smaller.
2: Totally, and that
0: it's okay because you can handle anything that comes your way. Yeah, and the the truth is that fat doesn't keep you safe, and so that's you know something I'm still oddly enough learning. Yeah, or reminding myself of, but it's it's you know work that has to be done.
2: I feel like it's also in – you write about this in Hunger, but also in um, a lot of your fiction, that thing where um, you open – when you open yourself up to joy, like, say, a new relationship, Mm -hmm. and suddenly you're vulnerable all over with Mm -hmm. this joy. And you're like, no, 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 I want to go back to um, the me that does not accept love or, like, the Mm -hmm. me who, you know, can't accept that someone – is, like, into me and digs me. And I have that, too, where it's like, I just I just want to be loved. Like, can't someone just love me? And then when someone finally does, I'm like, no, no, no. Like, yeah. this is too new. I have to change every aspect of mm-hmm. myself.
0: It can be <laughs> you know? terrifying to be seen and loved for who you are, especially because I often think, oh, God, you love this? <laughs> yeah. What the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) Get your shit together. Right. You can do better than that. (laughs) Yeah. It's terrifying when you get the thing you most want. Totally. And I think that, especially for me, my instinct in general is to run from it. Yeah. And uh, Lord knows I've tried, but (laughs) I don't know. I think when you find the right person, you can run all you want. They keep running after you.
2: Yeah. I always am like... You know, when I start dating someone, I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry I brought yeah. myself into your life.
0: Like, I oftentimes feel like <laughs> giving my loved one a disclaimer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> you are in for a world of hurt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a project. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah. But then it's so amazing, too, when that person's like, what are you talking about?
0: Absolutely. The way I <laughs> see myself and the way I'm seen. Um, by the people I'm closest to are two very, very different things. Yeah. Thank God, <laughs> thank God.
2: <laughs> yeah, but
0: it goes both ways too, because I know that often. Yeah, I mean, I, the way I see someone I love is, it's not an idealized version. I, 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 I see the good. I see the flaws, and I, I find it to be entirely remarkable as all of it. I'm here, you know. I'm here for all of it, yeah. and. Um, when that can be, like, reciprocated, it's a hell of a thing.
2: What would you say to, you know, like, the young girl who— because I think one of the things, I don't know, for me as a teenager that was the most frustrating was just, like— I, I can't get any older any faster. i'm I'm this age now i'm I'm mm-hmm. lost. i I don't and you're not meeting great partners and mm-hmm. great friends necessarily when you're twelve, thirteen, fourteen. And you write a lot about that um in hunger. You write about being really lonely, which I really, really related to that feeling of like, I really might not be for this world. yeah what what are you supposed to do, you know, in those years?
0: You have to suck it up, not suck it up, because <laughs> you you have to just know that it gets better. And I hate that phrase. Yeah, me too. Because sometimes it doesn't get better. I know. <laughs> it really doesn't for yeah. a very, very, very long time. Yeah. But, you know, when I look back to being 12, 13, 14,
2: 19, <laughs> 25. 26, Right, honestly.
0: <laughs> I often thought... This is all there is. And yeah. how disappointing.
2: Yeah.
0: how I mean, I was just so profoundly lonely and so profoundly lost. And I just never seemed to be able to make friends, let alone romantic partners. My, my love life was such a <laughs> shit show. But so was my friendship life. And, you know, I just, for me, I survived because of books. Yeah. which doesn't work for everyone but you have to have something yeah you have to have something you care about that's external to you and that's not dependent on other people
2: yeah
0: whether it's art or music or reading or writing yeah. or a combination of the above or knitting or running you know you just need something something that keeps you sane yeah while you are going insane
2: yeah
0: and that's That's it, because no number of platitudes make it better. Yeah. Nothing made it better, no matter what anyone told me. I was just convinced that this, you know, my life was hell. and Quite frankly, there are days I'm still convinced of that. (laughs) But I had something. I had a passion, even if it was just me and it was just mine. And I never imagined anything was going to come of it, though I dreamed um, a little bit. But I I just, even like what I dreamed— I didn't dare dream big. I just thought maybe one day <laughs> I'll publish a book. Yeah. That was the extent of it. That was yeah. it. Like and then it would sit on a dusty shelf and maybe 3 people would read it and that would be enough. Yeah. But I had that and so I I always encourage young people to have something that you care about because sometimes I, that keeps you alive.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's like the good kind of magical thinking.
0: It, that is the good kind of <laughs> magical thinking. It is because there's something that can come from it. Yeah. Something can be produced out of it. The kinds of magical thinking where you rewrite history doesn't work. <laughs> but the kinds of magical thinking where you get to create something or be part of something, um, that's the kind of magical thinking that got me to where I am today.
2: I guess I think about, like, young people who find escape in art and the books they read and maybe wanting to write a book or wanting to do something creative. But it's hard to overcome that, like, the part of you that feels small and needs to escape from the world into, like, the fantasy world of of art and and, um, creative pursuits can also be the part of you that thinks you're not good enough to pursue those things, Mm -hmm. or why would anyone want you, or want your art? How did you build the confidence to start writing so prolifically and in so many different genres?
0: I didn't. I just (laughs) did it. I mean, I always wrote for myself, and writing for myself meant that I wasn't worried about an external constituency for my work. I I had hopes and dreams, of course, but I wrote for myself. And when you do art for yourself, uh, that makes it possible. Like you don't need confidence when you do it for yourself. And it was just sheer stupidity that encouraged <laughs> me to put it out into the world from the beginning. Like, oh, I wrote this thing. But of course it's incredible. <laughs> I wrote it. Like it, it wasn't co- and it wasn't confidence. It was just blissful ignorance of the yeah. world. It was just a sort of profound belief in what I created because I created it, and I just loved writing it so much. And I got kicked in the teeth constantly with rejection, as one should be. (laughs) You know, that's how it goes. Um, And— the better I—I just kept writing despite the rejection. I was like, oh, well, I'll prove you wrong because I'm super competitive. (laughs) And so then it became a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And um, the better I got, then I still was getting rejected, but I was getting feedback. And so I would actually listen, and I continue to listen to editorial feedback. And I would just try and get better with each— new piece I wrote and to recognize my own faults. Like, I can look at something I've written and know what what needs work and, like, where the issues are. Like, I can look at hunger, which I'm very proud of, and know, like, what I would do better the next time. Really? And, yeah, absolutely. And um, that also helped just being able to be honest with myself. Even, you know, my feelings get hurt when I get a bad review, of course. Yeah. Or when I get a rejection. But when I get over my feelings, I am able to be rational and to, to try and become better.
2: I think you've said this before in other interviews, but I think um, I heard you say one time, like, I've been so many times I've been the first. Mm-hmm. And to me, um, you're so incredibly inspiring because You have been the first in so many ways, and I think you've been the first because of so many different things. Like, you know, you you found your way into your career in a way that wouldn't have been possible 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. because 50 years ago, there was no internet, and you couldn't, um, like, gain a following on the internet, and people are so mean about the internet, (laughs)
0: They can be. It's something.
2: And it's often people where I'm like, you're mean about the Internet because you're a rich white guy with a legacy publication. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you don't need to worry about writing someone, something that's accessible to everyone. Of course, you don't have to worry about dumbing yourself down. Like, But then there's also, you know, for people of color and for women, sometimes they can't get into the New York Times. Sometimes they don't have those connections. and. Mm-hmm they get into the New York Times by writing a bunch of stuff for the Internet and then finally convincing everyone that they're really good, mm-hmm. which you did. And then the New York Times is like, hey, do you want to write for us? Absolutely.
0: <laughs> when I think about the the number of publications that I had to accrue mm. to get my foot in the door of yeah. some of the big publications, like what we have to do to get into entry-level shit yeah. is absurd. Yeah. I mean, and meanwhile— Joe Q. Whitey right. just does fuck all. Yes. And people are like, we're going to give you a column.
4: Yes. <laughs>
0: it's, it's crazy. So, I, you know, I look at my, my CV these days and I just think, Roxanne, <laughs> my God, what you've done. And, and it's all because of this drive because yeah. I know how hard I need to work to get a chance. Yeah. And then I know when I get that chance, I have to be exceptional, So that I'm not the last person. Right. Like my work ethic is largely informed by you will not be the last black woman Mm. or the last queer woman Mm. in this position. You have to be a steward. And so that's a lot of pressure.
2: Yeah, that is. Honestly.
0: And a lot of work. But then I look at the women who made my life possible And I know that I'm working under generally ideal conditions. Yeah. I I make good money. I am educated, -educated. (laughs) over-educated. I have a job. I have health insurance. Yeah. And so I know that I'm far luckier than most of my peers. Yeah. And uh, I know that I'm far luckier than the women who paved our way and made what we do possible.
2: Do you feel that pressure intensely with this book? Because, you know...
0: (laughs) Yeah, I do. Because... Fat representation is so bad. And so there's such a dearth of it. And I'm only one person. And unfortunately, when you're the first, I'm not the first by any stretch of the imagination to write about fatness. Um,
2: But even when you're one of the most prominent.
0: Yes. And the the problem becomes that people think that you're the only voice. It's that sort of danger of the single story that Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie talks about.
4: Totally. And
0: we see it in any sort of area of representation of the marginalized where, you know, I just want to be clear that this is a memoir. Yeah. It, it's it's my story. No one else's. Right. And you are not meant to view me as a spokesperson for the fat community. Right. Um, or for any community. Um, but I don't say that to shirk responsibility. Mm-hmm. I, I do recognize what prominence Comes with. I just say that so that people can understand that there are other voices that deserve to be heard, and that again, it's not a singular narrative.
2: I think also a lot of times when, a, when a woman with a identity that's like you said, like the the dearth of narratives about um, being a fat woman, it also creates this thing where when you write about that, you become. Instead of a writer, you're like a, a textbook. You're read mm-hmm. like, uh, I don't know, you're, you're read and like a, as if you're a roadmap to. Yeah, I that think subject. textbook
0: puts it really well. Like you're here to like, and, and I actually hear this a lot. People come up to me in one forum, another, and say, You teach me so much. <laughs> yeah. And I never want to be dismissive of, of that because it's coming from a good, genuine place. Yeah. But. It also does this really awkward thing where they place the person of color or the marginalized person in the role of guru. Right. Or you're my teacher. Yeah. Show me how to be a better person. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm just trying to figure out how to be a better person.
2: <laughs> right. I don't
0: have any answers. I don't have any wisdom. Right. At all. If you discern wisdom from all the nonsense that I'm saying all the time, <laughs> okay, okay. I thank you, <laughs> but please recognize that I'm a work in progress as well, yeah, a- and that you know this isn't meant to be a textbook in any way, shape, or form, and if you take it as such, like one of the most big su- one of the biggest surprises of my career has been how how often bad feminist is taught.
3: Mm.
0: It's wonderful, yeah, but I just never dreamed <laughs> that people would literally take it as a textbook, yeah. <laughs> It's awesome, but I just, I never dreamed it. I was just like, I'm just, I'm writing some essays trying to like make sense of why do we talk about sexual violence in such horrible ways? Yeah. And why don't I love girls? And, (laughs) you know, like, why is Fifty Shades of Grey so popular? Yeah. And I'm always just trying to answer these questions. And here we are. It's,
2: (laughs) it is that pressure of being made into something more meaningful than mm-hmm. you ever intended or wanted to Absolutely. Be you
0: know, and I think people often, they also read writers in general. Like, they, ex- they think that everything we do is, like, done from a place of profundity. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had a book come out earlier this year called Difficult Women, and people were like, well, what is the meaning behind this story? And, like, one of the stories is I was watching a Jamie Lee Curtis commercial <laughs> about Activia and so I wrote a story about a woman eating expired yogurt. And in another story, it's a woman. It's a story about a woman who's made entirely out of glass. And all the reviews have been like, and she was talking about transparency and gender roles and blah, blah, blah. No. I was sitting on my couch watching Sweet Home Alabama. And at the beginning of Sweet Home Alabama – you learn that when lightning strikes sand, it creates glass. Mm. And so I thought, what if lightning (laughs) struck sand and a glass woman rose out of the sand? Like, I'm very literal. I'm (laughs) I'm not special. I'm not a swami. I don't have, like, this profound level to my story. Like, what you perceive from it, okay. Uh, Okay. Yeah. No. (laughs) No. I was watching Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> I wasn't commenting on gender roles yeah. at all, though I'm interested that you took it there. Yeah. Okay, like what are you working through?
2: Yeah. It's
0: really interesting to read people's responses sometimes because you can tell that they're just kind of like working through their own shit.
2: Roxanne, thank you so much for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule. No to problem. To be with us.
3: I'm glad to be here, Jenny. Thank you. All
2: right. Thanks.
3: That was author Roxanne Gay in conversation with Rookie contributor Jenny Zhang. Roxanne's memoir, Hunger, is out now. Jenny's book of short stories, Sour Heart, will be out soon. We'll be back with more Rookie after this break. A couple weeks ago, I went to Los Angeles where I met up with author Michelle T., Michelle has written books like Black Wave and How to Grow Up, along with lots of others. She also founded a nonprofit called Radar Productions, which creates a platform for emerging queer artists. And she has a parenting magazine called Mother Magazine. Along with all of the work she does to elevate queer voices and tell compelling stories, she's also really into tarot. So much so that she wrote a book called Modern Tarot, which explains each card in the tarot deck and even has spells for when you want to channel the energy of a specific card, or perhaps if you want to move past a point you've confronted. I started giving myself tarot readings about a year and a half ago. I'd always been interested in the imagery of it, and I had received a few decks as gifts. I don't know why people pegged me as a tarot person. Um, But it wasn't until I was actually acting in a play that was really demanding and uh, that I had to be kind of antisocial for that I started becoming really into tarot. I became really attached to that process of pulling a card for myself or pulling a few and being guided by the deck to understand what was going on kind of deeper within me. Now I've been using Michelle's book, Modern Tarot, when I draw a card to kind of get a different perspective on it. So I talked to Michelle about the significance and history of tarot and then got a reading that I think is pretty spot on. It was actually freaky. Hi, Michelle. Hi,
4: Tavi. Thank
3: you so much for doing this. Oh, I'm really happy to be here. So for listeners who are not familiar with tarot at all, can Uh you briefly explain what it is?
4: Well, it's a deck that looks like... They're, they're kind of based on playing cards, actually. So you can take a tarot deck and you can separate it into two sections. One is the major arcana. So if you're watching, like, a movie where something spooky is supposed to happen and there's tarot cards and suddenly they throw down, like, the death card, the moon card. And there's also very happy cards in there also, like the empress and the star. Those are archetypes. And then the minor arcana is just based upon... Basic playing card suit. So instead of there, instead of the hearts, there's the cups that represent emotions. Um, there's the wands that represent sort of energy and ambition, creativity, sex. There's the pentacles or discs that represent the material world, work, money, you know, kind of stability. And there's the swords, which represent um, kind of intellectual thought, the mind, communication. And there's the court cards, too. So there's, like, you know, the king of swords and the queen of swords and the page and the knight. And um, they're all images. Uh, you know, the the deck that I based my book on, that I use for my book and that I have with me today, is the Rider-Waite deck. And that's a, that's kind of the, the classic tarot, I think, that a lot of people might be imagining right now listening. It's the one that kind of pops up. It's probably the most popular one where there's... An image of, like, you know, a woman holding two swords sitting blindfolded by the sea and things like that. And what you do is you just sit with these cards and you can be really focused and ask a specific question, like, you know, should I go back to school? Should I keep dating this person? Should I quit my job? Or you can just sit with the cards and say, like, what's up for me right now? What do I need to be paying attention to? What's swirling around my environment? You know, and you can do all kinds of different layouts. And I find that they tell a story. The images sort of blend together. One image kind of speaks to the next, speaks to the next. And then before you know it, you have some sort of narrative sitting in front of you. And um, I think a good tarot reading functions like a good therapy session. You know, like I'm not super psychic. I'm intuitive, you know. But I'm not psychic, so I'm never gonna give a reading and be like, "I see, you know, <laughs> your your death approaching, and you're si- when, in your 60s. It'll be you'll be on a plane, you know. I can't mm-hmm. tell you any spooky things like that. Think I'm sure everyone's thankful for that. <laughs> but I can just be like, hey, you know, it seems like there's something that's haunting you, and maybe it's about the situation in the past that had to do with a person or family. You know, I can call yeah. those kind of things. Yeah, well,
3: in the intro for your book, you talk about how it's a good way of honing your intuition because obviously the cards can't be super specific and right. be like, Queen of Cups, your mom. But if you right. think that's my mom, then like that yeah. tells you something about how you feel about your mom. It really so does. Think about that.
4: Yeah, it's All right. it's very cool. It really helps you. It helps you hone your intuition and it helps you trust your intuition. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is sometimes even more difficult than than honing it. It's like I feel like so many of us are— Intuitive people, but we don't trust ourselves. So, you know, when I'm giving a tarot reading, I'm kind of out on this weird tightrope where I'm, I I have to trust my instinct with it because I can't sit there and go, like, oh God, I, I mean, it could be this thing or it could be that thing, or, you know, because that's a terrible tarot reading. That's not what anyone wants to hear. So I just have to feel my instinct about what the card means and just like go with it. And it's really, empowering to do that and then to have people be like wow yeah that totally makes sense it's cool it helps you be like intuition is real what is this mysterious world we live in that we have the sixth sense you know yeah you know, people might be listening to this and think that if they're not familiar with cards, think there's something like spooky about them, and they certainly have that mystique about them. But they're really just these tools that um, are these pictures. They're a pack of picture cards, and it's what you put into them. I, I always say, like, you're the magic. Like, you're the cards aren't magic. That you're the magic that's animating the cards. You know, Um and I, I can give. I could give you a tarot reading with a deck of UNO cards. Like, I've actually done that before. <laughs> wow. Like, I've read cards with UNO cards. Because it's just, you know, it's the same system. It's colors instead of suits. There's four colors. It's one through ten, you know. And then mm-hmm. you just kind of get creative with the what, what you think the wild card might be or the, you know, right. those other kind of punishing cards that come up in an UNO game. But it's you, you know. It's you sitting there and getting in touch with your intuition and using the cards as a tool to help you focus it and practice sort of making a narrative. And I mean, I'm a writer, so I write stories, so it's really easy for me to see the story kind of coming up in the in the pictures. Why did you want to write this book? Well, I've been reading tarot cards since I was 15 years old and and reading for so long for my friends, having done it professionally, reading them for myself. A lot of the books that are out there with the traditional meanings, they're so old. I mean, they're just the language is very antiquated, the scenarios are very antiquated, um, and I just find in reading them in the here and now for contemporary living people, it's you have to be constantly translating it and kind of bringing it down to earth. So I thought it'd be really fun to have there be a book that kind of does that for you. You know, so um, so that if you're looking at you know that the chariot card, which is like the chariot of war, it's like you know probably. For most people who I'm, whose cards I'm reading here in the United States in 2017, they're not jumping on their chariot of war, you know. <laughs> but so what are you doing? Well, you're kind of like jumping into your metaphorical chariot of ambition and you're like going out there to get what you want, you know. So I wanted to put that kind of spin on it. I'm also, you know, like a million people really sensitive to the sort of um, misogyny and sexism that's sort of baked into the tarot from, from – The culture that it came out of like a gazillion years ago. So to me, it was really nice to have a book that I could work within and and talk about how when we're saying masculine in the cards, like that masculine energy could be held by a female. When we're saying feminine, feminine energy in the cards that can be held by a, a man or a masculine person or a person of no gender or every genders, I just feel like the way we think about gender in 2017 is so much different than in, like, I don't know, what is it, like the 1500s, yeah. you know? <laughs> I mean, it's even different than how it was, like, in 2010, right? So yeah. so I wanted to be able to speak to that, and I feel like it's another kind of deconstructing the weird gender gendering of the tarot is something that can also help open it up to people who are curious about it but also feel like, oh, what is this weird thing with, like, the emperor man and the empress mm-hmm. mommy and the daddy, you know, like, get in there and be like, no, these are just energies, and they've been mm-hmm. labeled— in this particular way in the past, but we can make them be whatever we want.
3: Well, as I understand it, I'm getting a you're reading getting from your the cards read.
4: Today. Yep, <laughs> I'm passing a deck of the Rider-Waite cards over to Tavi. They're again uh, a classic deck. They're the deck that I worked with in the creation of my book, Modern Tarot. And there's a lot of, of decks out there that are derivative of the Rider-Waite, like most of them probably are. And you can use those decks with the book as well. So, so you just shuffle. However you feel comfortable shuffling, again, there's a lot of superstition about the tarot. Some people are very, like, gingerly shuffling them, but I'm like, you can shuffle them like a poker player. It's fine, <laughs> you know?
3: <laughs> yeah, I, have, I don't know any other way to do it.
4: <laughs> and I would just say, just think broadly about your life right now. We'll just do a, a classic, simple Celtic cross um, layout and just see what comes up. So the first card that goes down is, like, you're present today. Like, Tavi today, Queen of Cups. Beautiful lady sitting on a throne by the sea, holding a giant chalice, um, crossed with the page of pentacles. Sort of earnest, ambitious young scholar holding a pentacle in his hand and gazing at it. Hell yeah. (laughs) Conscious thoughts, what you're kind of very aware of in in your mental sphere right now. King of pentacles. These are a bunch of court cards. They're people cards. They're the trickiest cards to read, I think, because they can have so many different meanings. They can all be aspects of yourself. They can represent people in your life. They can also represent situations. Hmm. So we'll just, you know, we'll we'll kind of touch on all the different possibilities. King of Pentacles is like doing good, just like sitting in a big grapey robe, this robe covered with grapes, hmm. holding, a, holding a pentacle. And then your unconscious thoughts. So something that's sort of, happening kind of under the surface you might not be as clued into the energy but it is somehow influencing you right now four of pentacles so it's this guy he's got four pentacles one's on his head he's got a foot on each one and then he's hugging one yeah all right here's your uh recent past five of swords there's Hmm. it looks like the aftermath of some sort of sword fight some people are retreating they left their swords on the ground and our main person is Looks pretty happy like he won. He's holding a couple swords. Looks like he's going to hmm. go collect the rest of them. Coming up, future. Four of wands. A beautiful sort of bower. Is that a bower? I don't I think know. think it might be a bower. It's like a beautiful swag, this garland, a fruity, lush garland hanging on a bunch of um, staffs. And then in the background, there's some people sort of celebrating, like with oh. throwing their hands in the air. There's a castle. It's very nice. Huh. This is a card that represents sort of you right now, and it's the nine of wands. Sorry about your head wound, Tavi. <gasps> this person has a bandage on his head and is um sort of looking around a little. Looks a little freaked out. He's, what he's got, he's got. We're gonna we're gonna make it all make sense. Okay, we're gonna figure gotta, gotta, it out. Gotta, gotta, we're gonna figure yeah. it out. This is nothing you don't already know, so don't worry about it. And and if oh. you are concerned about the future, it looks really nice. So oh, true.
3: Okay.
4: Yeah, <laughs> here's your um, environment, King of Cups. Another, mm. another uh, royalty sitting on a throne in the sea. Hmm. Hopes and fears, the world. Wow. Yeah.
3: I do fear the world.
4: <laughs> and then overall, your, your outcome card is the seven of cups. A lot of beautiful cups coming out of a cloud, each holding their own sort of possibility. When I do this reading... If the if the outcome card is not one of the major arcana, I pick three off the top. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of fussiness I like. So. I do too. You do? Yeah. Oh, and look what you got. You got the High Priestess. <gasps> mm. Very beautiful. Okay. So the um the cliff note version of what this reading is is it's telling me a story of a lot of opportunity and a lot of hunger for opportunity, a lot of a lot of ambition and being on the precipice of things sort of coming together, but being there being a lot of fear still happening. Um, just like being afraid to t- to take a chance or dare you hope, you know, for everything that you're hoping for. What's cool is that you don't, you put a brave face on it. So when you're going out in the world and chasing down the stuff that you want, nobody would know that you have these sort of um just basic kind of life stability concerns, <laughs> <laughs> huh. but, but you do. And, you know, it, it makes sense that you do, especially learning you're a Taurus. But um <laughs> something's happening for you in your near future that's going to confirm that you are in fact in a stable place. Things are going great for you. And one thing that will, and that's going to bring you a lot of relief. Um, however, you do have so many opportunities being presented to you that it could get a little dizzying and overwhelming. And If and when that happens, the high priestess popped up to be your friend and your guide. It means just withdraw into yourself, take some me time, meditate, do things that allow you to get in touch deeply with your intuition because you really know, you really do know what you want to do and what opportunities are best for you. So you just need to withdraw a little bit from the cacophony of all the people that you've got in this reading and people who are around you. Mm. Yeah.
3: Oh, wow. Okay, this is—I might, like, take a picture of it with my phone. You should. Because I know stuff's going to go down, and I'm going to be like, oh, that's what that card was telling me Totally, totally. And a lot of it already uh, feels very uh, relevant.
4: Oh, I'm glad. Thank you so much, Michelle. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank
3: you to Michelle T for that incredible reading, and be sure to check out her new book, Modern Tarot. We'll be back with more Rookie after this break. We are back with another installment of our series Ask a Grown, where real grown-ups answer your questions. Today we have illustrator and comic book artist Jillian Tamaki here with advice. Jillian is best known for her illustrations in The New York Times and The New Yorker. She also illustrated the graphic novels Skim and This One Summer. She has a new book out called Boundless that's kind of epic and, like, the product of so much effort and love and self-reflection. And so we thought she'd be a good person to answer one of your questions.
1: Hi, my name is Jillian Tamaki, and I am a cartoonist and illustrator, uh, and I live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I'm here to answer some questions from Rookie Readers, and I hope I'm of some help. Anyway, on to the first question, and this is from a, a reader listener on Twitter. How do you stop procrastinating things you like and want to do, but the fear of not being good enough stops you? This is interesting. It's is a question that I feel or like a syndrome um, or problem that I encounter in teaching a lot. And I think it really stems from this phenomenon of something existing perfectly in your mind. And then there's a fear of, well, it's just inevitable that it'll be sort of ruined in the process of being translated from your mind where it's perfect to reality where it's always going to be less than perfect. And I'm sure that that trans- that similar idea is within all creative uh, pursuits, whether it's art or music or writing or whatever. Yeah, so I think like procrastination or perfectionism – are words that, um, they're kind of like euphemisms for like fear (laughs) or something like that. And yeah, I, I try when, when people have problems like this where they really are gripped by like a lot of fear, like paralysis, I really respect that because it's, it's not really that easy to be vulnerable and put yourself out there. It's very hard to be vulnerable and be, and, and, and say something and like, put something to paper and commit to an idea. But that's the challenge. That's why every that's why not everybody <laughs> can can be an artist. So I think maybe in terms of um actual advice would be maybe don't feel like you need to share something. I think you really have to force yourself to make anything. And maybe that's A very small thing. One reason I love comics is that it's very accessible. You just need to make – you just need a piece of paper and a pen and you can literally make a short story within 20 minutes or something like that. Um, I'm always in favor of low-stakes projects that aren't – they aren't books. They aren't whole graphic novels or whole novels or giant paintings or small things, a sketchbook. Um, And maybe that will help just – to help you loosen up to the idea of, um, it's not the end of the world if something doesn't go right. Um, uh, and, and, and flex that muscle. It's, it is sort of like a muscle of committing to things and putting things out there. And it's not so scary. And you don't need to show anybody if you don't feel like you're ready to show anybody. But I think that there is a practice makes perfect, um, element at play here. Um, and it's never going to be perfect. And once you understand that too, um, you can be a little bit more sympathetic to yourself and uh, and understand you're not a perfect person and the thing you, you'll make won't be perfect. So just have a little bit more kindness <laughs> to yourself and the things you create is um, what I try to keep in mind as well. Okay, so the second question is kind of long, but I'm going to read it, and it goes as follows. Hello, I am a freshman in college, I am having trouble with interpersonal relationships. In high school, I always had my core group of friends and a lot of people from classes and clubs that I got along with. I wasn't popular, but I was really comfortable and felt well-liked. I never went to parties and I never had any experiences with alcohol or marijuana until I got to college, but now I'm here and I'm feeling very out of my element. I'm finding it hard to make new friends because I don't really party. I try not to be judgmental, but I find it hard sometimes. I've considered asking the people in my program to take me to a party. They're nice and I'm sure they'd think it's cool that I'd want to come along one day. But since I don't drink or smoke and I'm not looking to hook up with anyone, I don't know that I'd have a lot of fun. It's been a while since I've been in college, but I do remember it pretty vividly. Um, I was very inexperienced in all those things (laughs) when I went to college, and um, I was very afraid, I think, of some of those new experiences. But I took college as an opportunity to sort of like rip off the Band-Aid with (laughs) a lot of that stuff I really wanted to experience those things and get them over with almost and sort of destigmatize the whole thing. So that was my own personal attitude towards it. I'm and I'm to be honest, I'm glad I did. I went like a little bit overboard for like the first couple months, <laughs> first semester, but I got it out of my system. I knew where my own limits were and I found that that it was, you know, a valuable experience in terms of demystifying some of those things. Um That said, I don't think that if that really isn't your scene, I don't think you necessarily need to follow that path. But um, I I do think that like, I'm finding it interesting that you think that you're going to find friends at parties. I think you find friends more when you're comfortable and you're doing things that you enjoy and in spaces that you feel safe and at home in. And maybe that's in your program. Maybe that's In an activity, you mentioned that you were involved with clubs, and um, I think that there's a lot of opportunities to meet people that have an intersecting interest as opposed to I'm in the same room with you and we're both drunk or high or whatever. I think that that's like a really great place to start. Also, live in a dorm if you don't live in a dorm. That was how I met a lot of people, and they were really sort of bright and intense friendships, but the friend that I'm I have like one friend from high school, from from college still and it was a person from my program. so we had a lot of intersecting interests. um, and yeah, I think it's I think the reason a lot of people are partying is because they feel just as um eager for connection as you do. So, um, I would really encourage you to be open to this time and, And I found the friendships that I made were very intense, um, but they were very fluid, you know, and they changed a lot and people moved in and out because I think it's a time where you're trying on a lot of new, trying on new ideas and thoughts and identities. And that's what college is for (laughs) in large part. So um, I think you should absolutely go to the party as well. Like, um, and if you hate it and then you for sure know that that's not for you and then you can know that for yourself but i think really try to be open and also just understand that everybody else is most likely looking um feeling awkward and looking for a connection as well i hope that helps and and good luck all right thanks bye <laughs>
3: that was comic book artist, illustrator, and grown Jillian Tamaki answering a question from a listener. If you want some advice, email your question to youaskedit at rookiemag.com, that's Y-O-U-A-S-K-E-D-I-T at rookiemag.com, along with your first name or nickname, your age, and your location. And if you'd like to hear your voice on the Rookie Podcast, you can record yourself on your phone or computer. Keep it to about a minute long and email it to us at podcast at That's it for this week's episode of The Rookie Podcast. I'm Tavi Gavinson. We're taking a break for a couple of weeks and we hope you get some downtime too. Go swimming, eat ice cream, jump rope, or stay inside in an air-conditioned dark room and re-listen to all of your favorite episodes of The Rookie Podcast. And maybe give us a review and rating on iTunes while you're at it. You can find us at RookiePodcast.MTV.com and at Rookie Mac on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Tavi Tool, T-A-V-I-T-U-L-L-E. Plus, check out Podcasts.MTV.com and at MTV Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram for more shows from the MTV Podcast Network.
2: This episode of Rookie was produced by Mukta Mohan, Michael Catano, and Kasia Mihailovich for
3: the MTV Podcast Network. Thanks to Lauren Redding for making the podcast happen. Thanks also to Shamir for our theme song, Hattie Stewart for the Rookie logo design, Cynthia Merahedge for Rookie's logo, Beth Heckel for the jewels, and Maria Inez Gull for her illustrations.